Well, today in our series on the book of Acts, we're going to come to Acts chapter 15, which is the story of the Jerusalem Council. This is such an important section of Scripture. In some ways, the Jerusalem Council dispute never ends. It is the very first heresy of the Christian faith that is being dealt with at the Jerusalem Council. And it is also the one that still crushes souls to this very day. I can in all honesty say that the dispute of the Jerusalem Council um, is similar and is the basis of uh, the, the greatest disappointment of my life. Um, because of what was decided at the Jerusalem Council and basically the rejection of that frequently in the Christian world, uh, people have been crushed. Uh, it is such an important aspect of the Christian life. And, you know, my disappointment is one thing, but um, I know many of you, I have children who were affected by this and have never gotten over it. So we are coming today to a monumental section of Scripture that is a must for all Christians to grasp and, you know, receive in their hearts. And so the Jerusalem Council. On just sort of a superficial level, here's what was being discussed. Um, a lady who is a grandmother says, One summer Friday evening, as my grandkids and I were leaving the playground, they asked for a snow cone from the snow cone shack nearby. It was getting late, <coughs> excuse me, and I knew the sun was going to set soon. <coughs> she was brought up in an environment where you have to observe Sabbath. And so this is Sabbath observance. <coughs> On Saturday, the sun is setting. All right. <clears throat> it's getting late and I knew the sun was going to set. As I was standing in the snow cone line, I was looking back over my shoulder at the horizon in great fear. Hopefully, I could pay for this before the sun set. Like, wow, that's kind of crazy, right? I mean, she's standing in line uh, watching the sunset like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, the sun is going to set and I will not have paid for my snow cones. You think, I can't believe it. You know, like what's going on here? Well, that's why Acts 15 is written. That's why the Jerusalem Council met. And that is just sort of superficial. I mean, we feel sorry for the lady being worried about the sun setting on Saturday, Friday night, actually, uh, before she got her um, snow cones paid for. But uh, it trickles down to other things that are much more important than that. Here's what it sounds like at the beginning. Why did we need a Jerusalem Council? Acts 15, verse 1. And certain men who came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, unless you're circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. Verse 4. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done. Verse 5, <clears throat> and this is the important part. But there arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, saying that it was necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. All right, so imagine... <clears throat> the poor lady waiting in the snow cone line. This is exactly what's going on. Because there were Pharisees who came to believe the gospel who said, well, you still have to observe the law of Moses. You still have to keep the Sabbath. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you have to stop keeping the Sabbath. You, you must still observe the laws of Moses. 
And so this lady is in the snow cone line looking at the horizon to make sure that she pays for the snow cones before the sun goes down on Friday evening, which is the beginning of Saturday Sabbath. And, and this is the whole issue. So imagine that lady who lives today in our time was being addressed in Acts 15. That, that is the whole issue. All right. As we go, I have to remind you that James is a very important person in the Jerusalem Council. And if you aren't kind of aware of his bio, it might be a surprise to you. Uh, in Acts 15, you're going to see James is emceeing the council, right? So it says, after they had become silent, James answered, and he said, therefore, my sentence is. So James is emceeing. He says, all right, here's the conclusion. They go, wow, you know, that's really something. And just bear in mind that this is James, the, the bio brother of Jesus, not James, one of the original 12 disciples, like Peter, James, and John were the inside circle of disciples, right? Well, that James had been killed uh, five years earlier, according to Acts chapter 12, James, the original disciple, had been killed by Herod. And so James, the brother of John, is no longer with us. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And just to remind you, this is a wonderful story. So very quickly, I have to remind you how this person, James, the brother of Jesus, is promoted to become the MC of the Jerusalem Council. All right, so remember, James is one of the brothers of Jesus. Of course, he's a half-brother, right? Because Jesus is virgin-born. So Jesus has brothers. One brother is James. And Matthew 13, 54 mentions, oh yeah, isn't his mother Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas? And yeah, those are his brothers. So James is one of those. And when Jesus did his first ever public miracle in uh, John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana of Galilee, um, James is there. So verse 12, after this, after that miracle, turning the water into wine, then he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers. So they were with him when he did his first public miracle. In John chapter 7, we are now two years into Jesus' ministry. And his brother James still doesn't like him, doesn't believe in him. So uh, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Two years Jesus has been ministering. His brothers therefore say to him, Depart from here, go into Judea, so your disciples also may see the works that you do. For there's no man who does anything in secret, and he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And verse 5 says they were being uh, aggressive with Jesus because they didn't believe in him. So what we have here is James, the brother of Jesus, two years into Jesus' ministry, he just doesn't believe in him. But his mind was changed overnight because in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, Jesus rose again the third day according to the scriptures, so says the Apostle Paul. And he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain under this present, but some are fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen of James. That's it, right there. James, his brother. And he, that James, changed his mind overnight. He saw the resurrected Christ. Now things begin to develop quickly. In Acts chapter 1, we have Jesus' ascension, right? And then the disciples go back to the upper room. The disciples return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. And when they had come in, they gathered in the upper room. And who's there? Verse 14, well, they all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. 
now his brothers do believe. And this is the ascension, right? They've just seen the resurrected Christ um, at the beginning of this 40 days of Jesus appearing. And now we have the uh, brothers believing. Now we come to 35. So all that is 32 when Jesus ascends to heaven. In 35, Galatians 1.18 says the apostle Paul, for the first time ever uh, since his conversion, went to Jerusalem. And it says he wanted to see Peter and he remained with Peter 15 days. But he says, the other apostles I didn't see except for James. And that's important because he's saying that James, the Lord's brother, is now an apostle. So he went from unbelief at the beginning of 32 AD to being an apostle in 35 and an important one. In 44, we're coming forward now. So James has been a follower of Jesus since 32, the resurrection. And in Acts 12, notice he's a really important person. When we get to, you know, 12 years later after his conversion, he's a big deal. So Peter has just gotten out of prison, right? And Peter continued knocking. When they saw him, they were astonished, but he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go show these things to James. So Peter, of course, is the number one guy in Jerusalem. But James is evidently number two. He says, go, go tell James, the brother of Jesus, that James, go tell him that uh, I'm, I'm released. In 49, that's where we are today at the Jerusalem Council. Again, now James has become the MC of a whole collaborative effort of the church. And so James is the man. In Galatians 2.11, we're at 50 AD, so one year after he MC'd the Jerusalem Council. And it says in verse 12 of Galatians 2 that certain people came from Jerusalem to Antioch from James. So once again, James is kind of the boss, the main pastor at the Jerusalem church. In 57, this is at the end of Paul's missionary journeys. So he's done missionary tours one, two, and three. He's done with number three. And he goes and he gives his report to the important people in Jerusalem. And it says, when he had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James and all the elders. So when Paul was ready to give his mission report in Jerusalem, he gave it to James. James is basically the pastor of the Jerusalem church now. So after seeing the resurrected Savior, James went from being a cynical unbeliever. I just don't believe in you. He went from being a cynical unbeliever to basically the, the anchor pastor of the Church of Jerusalem, which is the original church of the Christian faith. So, as we talk about James here, the question comes up, why should I believe in Jesus? Why should any of us believe in Jesus? And the answer is, for the same reason James believed in Jesus, because he saw the resurrected Christ, because the resurrection is real, and that's why we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so that's just a little bio on James, which uh, this was a good time to insert that. The problem at the Jerusalem Council, chapter 15, verse 1, and you'll notice what is in yellow font as we go. Certain men who came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, unless you're circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. If you're not going to be circumcised, you can't be a Christian. Case closed. In verse 5, there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees who believed. So Pharisees were becoming for real Christians. So Pharisees who believed, saying it is necessary to circumcise them, to command them to keep the law of Moses. 
um, in verse 24, the apostles say, We have heard that certain men who went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your soul, saying, You must be circumcised and you must keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. So this is the problem. The problem is actually two problems related. The first problem is that there's a certain kind of legalism that says that you have to keep the law in order to be saved. You have to keep the law if you want to be a Christian. That, from chapter 15, verse 1, is worded in the yellow font there. Unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. All right, so how do you become a Christian? Well, you have to believe the gospel, but you still can't become a Christian unless you're circumcised. That's what they were saying. All right, so there's a legalism that says you can't even be saved unless you keep the law. Then there's another kind of legalism, and this is the one that's more important for our generation. The second kind of legalism says that you have to keep the law in order to be fully pleasing to God. In other words, yeah, you can be a Christian and ignore the laws of Moses, but you can't be a serious Christian and ignore Moses. I mean, if you're really going to be a for real Christian, if you're going to do this right, if you're going to be fully pleasing to the Lord, you have to keep the law of Moses. So we have two kinds of legalism, right? One that says you can't be saved if you don't keep the law. And the other one says, well, you can be saved, but you can't be a really devoted Christian, fully pleasing to the Lord, unless you keep the law. So you still have to do it, not to be saved, but to be a for real devoted Christian. All right, so two kinds of legalism, two problems that are related. Problem one, again, the legalism says you have to keep the law even just to be a Christian. And again, as it's worded there, unless you're circumcised after the Moses, uh, manner of Moses, you can't even be saved. All right. Well, this is a little bit like um, Christian circles that exist even today that say you have to observe certain rituals or lifestyle changes in order to be a Christian. So this idea still exists where we live. Uh, some people say, uh, you, you have to be baptized to go to heaven. If you're not baptized, you can't go to heaven. You say, well, I believe the gospel. Well, it's not good enough. You have to be baptized and believe. Some people say, you have to go to mass, you know, worship services. Uh, you have to confess your sins to a priest. And then you have to do your penance, uh, whatever he tells you to do. Pray a certain number of Hail Marys or Our Fathers, whatever he tells you to do. You have to do that. And if you don't do that, you really can't be saved. Some people say you have to keep the Sabbath. Um, there's an entire denomination that is entirely built on this idea. You have to keep the Sabbath. If you don't keep the Sabbath, you can't go to heaven. Case closed. So just like Acts 15, right? And then there are some people who say, well, there just has to be a lifestyle of general integrity and kindness and spiritual enthusiasm. If you don't really have integrity, kindness, and enthusiasm, you can't be saved. So this problem, this legalism has never gone away. But this is the bigger problem. In our time, this is the bigger problem. The legalism that says, well, sure, you can be a Christian, but if you're really going to do this right, you have to keep the law. There are certain rituals or lifestyle changes you must practice or you're not a fully pleasing Christian. You're not a for real devoted servant of Christ. You'll go to heaven, but it's not great. All right. And these are like the Christians in our day who press for adopting things like this. Uh, Single-minded uh, single loyalty to one particular denomination that's especially pure. Like if you don't participate in this denomination, 
you could go to heaven, but you can't be fully pleasing to the Lord. When I was about 20 years old, my friend said, you have to come and talk to my pastor. And um, he held a position that's called Baptist Briderism. And um, he said, I hear that you're going over there to Moody Bible Institute. I said, yeah. He said, you know, that's okay, but you should be going to a Baptist church and a Baptist school. Um, I said, why? He said, well, because only Baptist people are the bride of Christ. Other people can go to heaven, but they're not the bride of Christ. I go, oh, okay. So you have to go to the pure denomination. I mean, you can be saved, but you're not going to be like fully pleasing to the Lord, right? Unless you're part of this denomination. Some people, a Jewish way of life. So the poor lady we began with in the snow cone line, she had been convinced that if you don't participate in a Jewish way of life, you can't be a devoted Christian fully pleasing to the Lord. You'll go to heaven, sure enough, but you're not really doing this Christian life right. Uh, some people, of course, the Amish would say you have to kind of do it our way. And um, some people say, well, you don't have to be Amish, but we should all be, you know, like back to nature and simplicity and farming and animals and, and crops. And, and we just have to be like way more simple if you want to do the Christian life right. And some people are in the whole homeschool, Christian school, child raising things and say, if you're going to really do the Christian life Right, you, you have to homeschool or you have to put your kids in a Christian school if you're really going to do this right. I mean, you're going to heaven, fine, sure, but you're not exactly fully pleasing to the Lord. And some people would say, um, if you're going to do the Christian life right, you have to be militant. Like You have to have a confrontational approach to all the lost people you meet and even the saved people who have problematic ideas. Uh, the saved people are in error. I mean, you, you, you have to be militant. You know, confront, confront, confront. You have to straighten people out. It's your job. And so it's an approach to all social relationships. Well, they would say, if you're a a nice, syrupy, sweet Christian, you'll still go to heaven, but you're not really pleasing the Lord. You have to confront the people. So there it is. As they were meeting at the Jerusalem Council, some very important points were brought up. This one's very important. This is from verse 7. And Peter brings this up. It says, When there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said, God who knows the hearts put no difference between us and them, between us who are Jewish and them who are Gentiles. That was a very important point. What's interesting is we're in 49 AD at this time. And we're quite sure of the date. Everybody is in agreement here. We're in 49 AD. It was at 32 A.D. when the um, mystery church age of grace was begun. So we are all of these years later between 32 and 49, and we are still trying to establish that the Jews and Gentiles are, are completely and utterly equal in the eyes of the Lord. Unbelievable. All of this is still being hotly debated in 49 A.D., even though it was true at the stoning of Stephen. So that's very interesting that Peter has to make this point in the Jerusalem Council. Here's what it sounds like. When there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago, uh, this is Acts 10 with the conversion of Cornelius. A good while ago, God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Again, Cornelius, Acts 10. And God who knows the hearts, bore them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why do you tempt God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. So Peter is basically saying, I was talking to Cornelius in his house and all of his entourage, his loved ones. And while we are speaking to them, we didn't even tell them what to do. While we are speaking to them, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the same thing that happened to us on the day of Pentecost happened to them. So clearly they were saved. And they had not kept the law of Moses. So why are we even having this discussion? So that was Peter's point. And it was a good point. It says in chapter 15, verse 12, when Peter was done, then it was Paul's turn to address the crowd. And in this case, Paul doesn't say all that much. It says that all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had worked among the Gentiles by them. So that was all their participation in the Jerusalem Council. And then we come to this salient point, and this one is going to be brought up by James, right? The MC of the council. So important point number two. After they had become silent, that is after Paul and Barnabas were done, and Peter, of course, before that, James answered, Simeon, um, same as Simon, same as Peter. Simeon, you know, was the name of the, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Simeon is the proper Jewish name for Simon, who is also called Peter. So Peter has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this, the words of the prophets agree, as it is written, and this is going to be a loose paraphrase of Amos chapter 9. As it is written, after this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, that the rest of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, declares the Lord, who does all these things. Then James says, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. So this is what the prophets said would happen. There would be this great um, number of Gentile people from all over the world who had become Christians. Now, just bear in mind that all the Old Testament prophets always knew that there'd be multitudes of Gentiles coming to Messiah. That was everywhere in the Old Testament. Every prophet knows that. What they didn't know was that there would come this mystery church age of grace in which the Jewish people and the Gentile people would be absolutely and utterly equal. That's what they did not know. And interestingly, as James points out this salient point, there, we always knew there would be multitudes of Gentiles saved, so, you know, get over it. While he points that out, it is interesting just for your own education to know that James intentionally left out the parts of Amos 9 that showed Jewish favoritism. Um, it was just wise. I mean, why bring that up? They're never going to understand. But here's what it looks like. So at the top of this slide, you see what James said. Uh, all the prophets agree, as it is written, after this I will return, build again the tabernacle. Tabernacle is the royal tent, the royal household of David. Uh, David's um, descendant is going to come to the throne. We'll rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will build again the ruins of it and we'll set it up that the rest of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called. All right. Now, underneath that, you see what Amos said. There's a little more to it. Amos said, in that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the gaps of it. And I will raise up his ruins and we'll build it as in the days of old so that they, you know, the descendants of David, 
so that they may possess the remnant of Edom, that's a nearby nation, and all the Gentiles. So when Messiah is done with his work, the Jewish people, David's descendants, are going to be the bosses of all the Gentiles. He's going to possess the Gentiles. Like, hmm, James didn't bring that up, did he? And then notice that this is when Messiah comes the second time, what we call the millennium, because look what happens. Verse 13, Behold, the days come, declares the Lord, that the plowman will overtake the harvester and the treader of grapes, him that plants seed. So we have agricultural prosperity that Jerusalem has never had before in this way. In verse 14, I'll build again, uh, bring again the captivity of my people of Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them. So the Jewish people in the privileged land, possessing the Gentile people. But James says, uh, let's not go there right now. Right now, let's just say a lot of the Gentiles are going to become Christians. And so this is no surprise. So the resolution of the council, the resolution is, therefore, my sentence, James speaking, my sentence is that we do not trouble those who from among the Gentiles have turned to God, but that we write to them that they abstain from four things. And here are the four. Abstain from pollutions that would be like the polluted things of idols. You know, don't have anything to do with idol rituals. So abstain from pollutions of idols and abstain from fornication and abstain from things strangled. All right. So in kosher Jewish diet, it was very important that you bleed the animal properly because you're not allowed to eat blood. And to bleed the animal properly, you should take a knife and cut its throat from ear to ear and let that blood gush out fast. Then hang the animal upside down, strip him of his uh, hide, and, and get busy with the uh, butchering process. But you have to bleed the animal properly. Now, if the animal were going to be strangled, or if the animal died without being cut across the neck, the blood would be trapped in the meat, and you can't eat it if you're a Jewish person. Now, technically, uh, the law never says that, but that's what they're saying. Uh, abstain from things strangled and abstain from eating blood. In verse 21, why? For Moses from ancient times has in every city those who preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. So that's the reason. Now the resolution is going to be restated. Uh, James says, here's my sentence. I think this is what we should do. And then the resolution is actually put on paper in writing, not proper paper, but whatever. In verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from. Same things. Meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and, of course, from fornication. And the reason why must we do this in the yellow font? Why should we have these controversial prohibitions? Three of them are controversial. Fornication, of course, that's a walkover. Everybody agrees with that. That's the way it's always been. But the other three, why... Do Gentiles have to abstain from blood or from animals that died on their own without being properly uh, bled out or from uh, eating meat that's left over from idol sacrifices? Why do the Gentiles have to do this in yellow font? Here's why. For Moses from ancient times has in every city those who preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. So... I'm kind of paraphrasing, you know, what they're doing here. But here's my little note from the Jerusalem Council to the Gentiles. Dear Gentile brothers, while it is not technically wrong to consume meat left over from idol sacrifices, meat from strangled animals, or meat that is still bloody, 
Your Jewish brothers are brand new to all of this, and they find it all intensely disturbing. And we just hate to ask them to bend over backwards even one more inch. So as a get-along measure, so we don't split the church wide open, please just acquiesce to these three non-absolutes. Can you do that for love's sake? That's what's going on here. On the uh, bottom of this slide, you see that the four prohibitions are listed. They're the same in both verses, verse 20 and verse 28, just in a different order. But it's the same idea. And you'll see that one of these, to abstain from fornication, that's an absolute. You know, there's no controversy there. That is, you know, concrete from Genesis through Revelation. Of course, you're not supposed to commit sexual immorality. So that's a lock. That's absolute. The other three prohibitions have to do with food. It's all about eating. And these are actually temporary. So, for example, you're not allowed to eat blood. Now, that's the Mosaic law. But as we learned in Acts 10, when Peter was told to eat what was not kosher by God, he was told to eat, um, we learned that Gentiles can eat blood. I have heard that there's this thing called blood sausage. And I think German people have it. I don't really think they should do this, but it's not a law. If I understand right, you um, actually uh, fry up coagulated blood and have at it. Well, it's, <laughs> that wouldn't work for Moses, but in Acts chapter 10, the Lord says, Arise, kill and eat, have blood sausage. <clears throat> All right. So it was concrete, but it was rescinded in chapter 10. Then strangle. Well, you could read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You're never going to see anything in the Mosaic law about eating meat that was strangled. Like, I guess it's okay. You want to hang the cow? You can eat it today if you want to. Um, It's not in the law, but it had become a tradition with the Jewish people. Well, we didn't see how it was bled out, so don't eat it. Sort of like today, the Jewish kosher tradition is just so, I don't know, um, so overdone. The law was you can't boil a calf in its mother's milk. But you could have boiled a calf in anybody else's milk, just not his mother's milk. But no, now, if you go to Israel, this is, this is no joke. If you go to Israel today and you want to have pizza, of course you're going to want cheese on your pizza, but that means you can't have meat. Well, why can't we have, you know, some kind of uh, beef sausage on our pizza? Well, because it's just possible that the cheese, you know, the mother's milk, uh, might have been connected to the calf that's for the meat of your pizza. And so basically in this restaurant, we only have cheese or we only have meat and we never mix it. It's just so overdone. The rule is don't boil this calf in this calf's mother's milk, but every other milk is fine. At any rate, the whole strangle thing is never in the Old Testament law. It just became a tradition. So it's not, you might say, it's nowhere in the Bible except the Jerusalem Council. And then meat that was left over for idol ceremonies. They said, would you just refrain from eating the meat that's left over from uh, idol sacrifices? You know, even in the Old Testament law, uh, if you bring your sacrifice uh, as a Christian, a, Christian a, a follower of God, and you bring your sacrifice, 
the priests are going to burn a little bit of that and the priests are going to take a little bit of that for their own tithe or for their own diet. And the rest of it, in many cases, is for the family. Well, the pagans did the same thing. And so you wanted to bring a sacrifice. Uh, There's more meat left over after the sacrifice than you want for your family. So you take it to the market and you sell it. And the Christians said, ah, I'll buy it. And so at the Jerusalem Council, they said, well, how about if you just don't buy the meat that's left over from that pagan sacrifice? Just don't, okay? But what's really interesting is in 55 AD or so, at the writing of 1 Corinthians, all of that is being renegotiated. So Jerusalem Council is 49. uh, 1 Corinthians is 55, give or take. And so we are talking about six years later, it's being renegotiated. So it wasn't like hard and fast. At any rate, those are the four um, points. And what's so important, this overarching principle, if you can latch on to this in your life, this is going to serve you so well. Here's the overarching principle. In verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. You know, that's about the size of it, right? I mean, whatever the Holy Spirit thinks. And then on top of that, you have the apostles, and we're going to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. I mean, if that's what the Holy Spirit thinks is good, and that's what the apostles think is good, well, let's just do it that way then. So here's how it is. Seem good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. I just love that. I mean, the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to make up a lot of rules here. That's what the apostles are saying. We just don't want a lot of rules. We are... We are uh, so grateful for the liberty that we have in Christ. Galatians 5.1 Stand firmly, therefore, in the liberty with which Christ has made us free. Don't you love the liberty that we have in Christ? Hang in there. You know, don't give up on that. And so they're saying, we're going to give you four things. And I just want you to know, there are a lot of other things we could have said. But we said, no, you know, what, what is the minimum we can ask these poor people to do? And still show that we are devoted to the liberty that we have in Christ. What's the minimum? They said, okay, well, fornication, well, that's a given. You know, tell the crazy Gentiles they can't live like they used to. Just make sure they know that. So, okay, everybody agrees. No problem. Then these other three about what you eat. What we're trying to do is just limit these, these controversial things. We're just trying to limit them. And so they came up with four. And one isn't even controversial, right? Fornication. And they could have added so many more. You think, yeah, they probably weren't tempted. Oh, I think they were tempted. I mean, they have former Pharisees who believe now the gospel. Believe me, there was temptation to add a whole lot more to that list of four. And that temptation is what kills. There it is. That's the problem. You think, well, what would they have added? Nothing comes to my mind. Well, 26 things come to my mind. So, for example, they could have said something about Sabbath keeping because we have entire denominations that are devoted to that. And they didn't say one thing about Sabbath keeping. It has to do with going to restaurants on Sunday. Uh, if I own my own version of Chick-fil-A, do I open or close on Sunday? It never goes away. What do you do? Don't know. Uh, how about offering money? Do you have to give your donations of money to the church? Or what if I decide to give my donation of money to a missionary or my donation of money to a poor guy who lives down the road? 
Is it okay or not okay? Eh, don't know. The apostles could have addressed that at the Jerusalem Council, right? But they didn't. Just for keep it simple. Uh, how about indebtedness? Is it okay for a Christian to have debt or no debt? How about investments? Can you play the stock market or is that basically Las Vegas? How about wealth accumulation? You can have a mansion or you can't have a mansion. Which? The apostles should have told us, right? Would have made it so easy. No, the apostles were interested in liberty. And so they didn't tell us. How about things like creature comforts and safe neighborhoods? Like, what if I want to live in a gated community? Good or not good? Uh, must I live among the poorest of people where crime rates are high? doesn't say in scripture jewish diet and health food like can i in good conscience have a ham sandwich or is that bad or what about health food it's okay for me to have two pieces of cake like no one only one or none i haven't had a piece of cake in 10 years whatever what is it don't know Exercise, high-risk sports, yoga, hours and dollars that we put in all of these things. So is it okay if I am a gym rat? What if I go to the gym for six hours a day, good or bad? Uh, What if I decide that I'm going to take yoga from the guy who loves uh, Eastern religion and incorporates that? Good or not good? What if I decide to uh, go bungee jumping with homemade bungees? Is it okay? I like the thrill. Not okay? What? And by the way, what if I decide that it's going to cost me $5,000 to do my exercise program? It's okay? What if it costs me 100000 Still okay? Don't know. How about holidays? I can't observe Christmas, or is that bad? Uh, that's pagan. Or do I have to observe Passover? Have to? Hmm, don't know. Doesn't say. How about political party endorsements? I must be a... Uh, Republican, I must be a woke person. Uh, which is it? No, oh, I, I, should, I should totally have nothing to say about anything political, right? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Jerusalem Council didn't say. American laws to mirror Jewish law. So we want America's laws to be just like the law of Moses, in which case we kill the heretics and the disobedient children, execute them, capital punishment, uh, I don't know. And the Jerusalem Council doesn't say. Uh, Baby care. I must breastfeed the baby or really, that's really not a big deal. What is it? And what about permissiveness? You know, I I should let the baby cry it out or I should be disciplined and I don't know. What what do I do? Uh, Adult daughters. Should I be arranging the marriage of my adult daughters? And uh, all of of the men who have daughters are saying, yes, we should do that. Um, House churches. Should we have house churches? What about church buildings? Is it okay to have a church building? Well, what if it's a really nice church building? How nice? You know, what are you supposed to say about these things? Singing only direct references to Christ for entertainment. So around this house, you'll never hear any song unless it is speaking, um, glorifying Christ. No, no songs of the world, including Bach and Beethoven. What about church music? Well, you have to sing psalms only. Or you can sing whatever you want as long as you don't use any instruments at all. Or, well, you can use instruments as long as it's the piano and organ. I mean, what is it? Cremation. I'm allowed to cremate my loved one when he dies or I have to bury him? Doesn't say. 
Foot washing. We're supposed to do foot washing because Jesus did foot washing. Uh, and in our church, we always do foot washing. And we're the only church that's right because nobody else does it. So we're right and you're wrong. Doesn't say. Communion frequency. What? You're not having communion every single Sunday? Uh, what's wrong with you? Or once a month is great. You know, I'm glad you're doing that. Or just once a week. The early church did it several times a week. You know, what are you doing? Is this okay? Doesn't say. Door-to-door visiting. If you really are going to go out and tell the world, you're going to have to go door to door. It's not like the lost people are going to come and knock on your door. Homeschool, church school, Christian college, Christian university, dress code wars. Tattoos are forbidden in the Old Testament. But you have a tattoo. Ah. Bible version wars, birth control. I just have to let the babies come as many as possible. Like, no, you can use natural birth control, but you can't use mechanical birth control or pharmaceuticals. Okay. Remind me again where that is in the Bible. Um, Separation from, you know, screens. No screen time for me. That's the world. I'm not doing that. Um, Hobbies. Lightheartedness. Entertainment. Like, well, my hobby is rebuilding old cars, restoring old cars. Is it okay? What if you know I give more money to restoring old cars than I give to the church? Is it still okay? Don't know. How about medical treatments? Uh, I can see a doctor or I should have divine healing. Uh, I should get the vaccination or I should not get the vaccination. Which is it? Um, should I go on life support or life support's bad? Which is it? Don't know. Number of church gatherings. How many? Are you supposed to go to church every time the church doors are open? How many gatherings? Two on Sunday? Three? I mean, what what do you have to do? Nobody knows. See, all these things and many, many more like them, the apostles could have added at the Jerusalem Council. And Christians are forever adding things to the Jerusalem Council. It never ends. It does never end. And this becomes such a big problem. So in chapter 15, verse 22, Please the elders, uh, apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men from among them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they wrote letters. So, you know, go back to the, the headquarters of the Gentile church, Antioch, and tell them this in a letter. And here's what the letter said. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Since we have heard that certain men who went out from us in Jerusalem have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us being assembled with one mind to send chosen men to you, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth as are in this letter. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, from which... If you keep yourselves, you shall do well. Farewell. End of the letter. So when they were dismissed, Paul, Barnabas, and the traveling party, they came to Antioch. When they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, the letter that they had written, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. Case closed. Everything's okay. Now we know what to do. In Romans 14.3, when this is being talked about, the Apostle Paul says, oh, and by the way, This issue, the gray areas of the Christian life, besides the Jerusalem Council, is the entire theme of four chapters of the New Testament. All of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, 
10, all of Romans 14, and leaning over into chapter 15, and then you've just read Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. It is a really big deal in the New Testament. And when Paul is talking about this issue in Romans 14, he said, now if you do certain things, don't despise the person who says you're a compromiser. You know, let not him that uh, eats, you know, I have liberty to eat whatever I want. Let him that eats not despise the person who does not eat. Uh, The person says, you know, you're such a pagan for eating a ham sandwich. And your response is, get a life. No, don't despise that person. That person is doing the best he can. So you eat the ham sandwich, don't despise the person who says you're doing something wrong. And let not him who eats not, I would never eat a ham sandwich, don't judge the person who does eat. So don't think badly of him because he's eating a ham sandwich. He's following the Lord the best way he knows how. And the reason why the guy who doesn't eat the ham sandwich doesn't despise the critic and the guy who won't eat the ham sandwich doesn't judge the guy who does. The reason why in the text is for God has accepted them. God accepted either one. The guy who ate the ham sandwich and the guy who would never eat a ham sandwich, God has accepted them. Isn't that something? God can go either way on the subject with you. So, I know you can't see all those pictures too well, but these are all different looks for the Christian life. And probably some of you look at those pictures and think, oh, 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 see that picture right there? I would like to have that guy come to my birthday party. You know, or that picture, that's my group, right? That's, those are my people. That's my tribe. Uh, I, I want them to come to my picnic. But those other people over there, I hope they don't come to the picnic. Uh, and so you're looking at them thinking, you know, that's my tribe. That's not my tribe. And they're all God's tribe. God has accepted them. It's okay. So you think, I hate his view of church music. God accepts him. I hate the way he dresses. I mean, unless it's immodest, right? God accepts him. I think he is a compromiser because he hardly ever even comes to any church service except for 11 o'clock Sunday morning. Like, he's not even taking this seriously. God accepts him. You just have to let all these preconceived ideas go. So, the Jerusalem Council says... It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Like, we're not just at living here. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. We're trying to give you maximum liberty, not maximum rigidity. And if that's what the Holy Spirit wants, then I think that's what you have to do. And what broke my children, what was the most traumatic event in my entire life thus far, has been when Christians said, no, you have to do it my way. And if you don't do it my way, I'm going to send the brothers to the four points of the compass. And it was, I, I pled with them. I used words. I used example. I pled with them. Don't do this. Don't do this. God has accepted them. Don't do this. And they wouldn't hear And it caused a really, really big problem. And those really, really big problems have been going on for 2,000 years. You have to hear it. The Lord said over and over 
in Revelation 2 and 3. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. No greater burden than these necessary things. There's not just one way to do the Christian life. And God has accepted them. As long as we're within the bounds of Scripture, God has accepted them. Can we stand and be dismissed? Father God, we realize that all of us have certain things that disturb us, that other people do, that aren't directly addressed in the New Testament. And I ask you that you would extinguish the uh, sense of being perturbed and irritated when you have accepted people who do things a little differently than we do. I pray that you would extinguish those feelings and that you would replace them with great feelings of grace and that we would all do everything we can to overcome the um, preferences, uh, not not the doctrinal things that we're actually reading chapter and verse scriptures about, but the preferences we have for the Christian life. And though we pray that for our own lives, we would be willing, as was decided at the Jerusalem Council, to lay no greater burden upon people than these absolutely necessary things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.